Welcome to our latest episode of Teach Computing Podcast. Um, Happy New Year to everyone, all of our listeners, and uh, welcome to the new decade. Um, we're really excited about the, the coming months on the podcast. We've got some really fabulous guests arranged. Um, and, and not least, our, our first guest of this year is um, someone who I've had the privilege of, of talking to a few times recently and who's done a fantastic uh, future Learn course for us, and we'll talk a bit more about that later on. Um, so we're talking today to Catherine Elliott, um, who um, knows almost everything there is to know about inclusion within computing, and she's going to tell us some of her insights and some of her some of the research that um, underpins some of the ways that we can include all students in computing. So, uh, hello, uh, hello, Catherine. Hello. And um, Catherine, I've given you a really kind of waffly introduction there. Do you want to just explain a bit about you, who you are, your background for the listeners that haven't um, come across your work so far? Certainly. So I am currently SEND lead for the Sheffield e-learning service. So we work with schools um, predominantly in Sheffield, but around the country as well on the use of technology. And I've probably spent the last 15 years looking at how we can use technology to um, include and motivate and engage learners with special educational needs and disabilities and particularly then in the last what now six years how we can make sure that computing is accessible for the greatest number of students as, as possible. Um, I'm also on the CAS Include working group which is all about diversity and inclusion and a CAS community leader as well up here in Sheffield. So you've been involved in the community for, for some time. And I think that's, you should have highlighted two bits of your work there that I think are really interesting. There's the, there's the use of technology to enhance and support learners to ensure that all learners can access learning in general. And then I guess there's the how do we make sure that learning about computing and, and computer science is accessible to all learners? Does that kind of summarise what you what you were saying? Absolutely, yes. And and I think, you know, they're, they're both equally important and can go hand in hand as well. We shouldn't forget that technology is a, a great enabler for, for a great deal of students as well as, you know, a, a source of learning and, um, and, and communication and knowledge as well. And so when we talk about um, inclusion um, and I find that sometimes inclusion is often sort of conflated and confused with other terms like diversity and so on. But when we talk about inclusion, what um, what sort of does that sort of mean for you? What do you think, what do we mean by when we talk about inclusion? Why is it so important? Well, inclusion, it is a really tricky term and it does have a great deal of different connotations. And, you know, we do need to think about the wider inclusion of, of all young people in computing. But, you know, what we're going to focus on today is including members of our classes who have special educational needs and diversities, who have different learning needs. And I think what it really means is is valuing every member of the class, supporting them to feel like they belong in that class, removing any barriers to learning computing and increasing participation. And I think, you know, we can we can say that we're including students if they are present in the classroom, but that's not real inclusion. They have to feel like they belong there and they're not just doing, you know, a differentiated worksheet and, and, and that's ticking the box of inclusion. You know, they need to be part of that classroom. They need to be engaged in the learning and they need to, you know, feel like there is that sense of belonging. And I mean, what's quite in it, 
important for me at the moment and what I've been looking at is is a concept called universal design which really is looking at design for the benefit of the greatest number of people as possible so making things inclusive by design and not just as a little add-on or sort of saying oh well we need to make sure that there are subtitles for, for this specific group of learners actually we can make sure that how we teach how we design how we um, you know engage with people is, is as inclusive as possible so for example um, you know, a lot of big companies nowadays, Microsoft and Apple, are, are looking at um, accessibility within their products from a, a point of view of this universal design. So actually, you know, a dictation tool is really useful for somebody with dyslexia or who has visual impairment. But actually, if you've got a broken arm, it's also useful. Or if you have poor motor control or you have English as an additional language and you find writing quite difficult. And so, you know, it's giving the same opportunities for everyone with the broadest possible um, approach to, to learning. So given the same opportunities to engage with learning and the same economic opportunities, you know, the opportunity to, to get a job later in life using computers and technology. And not only is it important for those young people, but it's important for us to have a diverse workforce. If every single person working in technology um, you know, comes from the same background and the same ability and the same experience in life, then we get a very, you know, a, a specific sort of way of looking at things if you've got people with disabilities or learning disabilities designing products and services then they become much more diverse in the first place uh, i did a bit of research back in 2018 uh, when i talked to a lot of educators and teachers of pupils working in special schools specifically and asked about well why is this important that they learn about computing and and the responses i got back were you know, a lot of very general ones, well, actually, computing is part of everything now. But actually, many teachers said that this was an area where their pupils could excel, and that they, they got a real motivation and engagement in the subject, and they were very good at it. Um, for other students, technology is, as I said before, it's an enabler, it's how they communicate, how they access learning is through technology. And obviously, we need to be preparing our young people for you know a life where they can be safe and responsible users of technology as well. So, for me, you know, inclusion it's really, really important for for all of those reasons that every child has the opportunity to to learn and uh, and be able to engage with computing as a subject. That that idea that um, I mean, there's a few things you mentioned there. The, the idea that we want, you know, we we, we at the foundation here at Raspberry Pi, we talk a lot about computing being for everybody. And actually, when we talk about everybody, we do mean we, we you know we want to include every single learner needs to have an exposure and an experience and an the opportunity to engage in learning about computing. Um, so I think that's really important. And I think the other thing you mentioned was about this idea that. Um, it, there are benefits not just to those individuals, but to us and to wider society. If we, you know, if if the technology of tomorrow is being developed and created, and um, and the ideas are being generated by a diverse set of people, then actually technology becomes more representative of society and its needs than rather be rather than being representative of a small subset of that society. Um, and I think the other thing that, that really resonated with me is the point you made about that the interventions that we might put in place for a specific group of students does not 
alienate or detract from other students. Actually, those same interventions will actually end up supporting a wide range of students um, because they, they are they are valuable and, and sensible interventions in the, of themselves, if that makes sense. And I think there's, you know, there's a there's sort of a well-known adage in that, um, you know, what's good for SEND is good for all students. And, and we shouldn't forget that, really. You know, if we want to engage a, a more diverse set of students in computing, then starting off by, you know, in, engaging and including students with learning difficulties and, and different disabilities is, is a good starting point. Yeah, and I think a sort of a habit, I mean, I, I remember falling foul of this when I was in the classroom, I think, you know, you, you might plan a lesson or an activity based upon your kind of your, that's accessible by most students in the class. Yeah, I mean, it is really, it's it's very, it is very difficult to do well, I have to say. And I, and I think what we mustn't forget as well is we have to challenge all of our students and don't just assume, you know, that, that the bare minimum will do for, for them as well. So it's, it's it's getting that balance of how we do it. But actually, there are certain things we can do that are beneficial to every single student in our class that if we simply did them by default would make a big, big difference. Mm-hmm. And so, what kinds of challenges do um, just do, do all students, but particularly those with special educational needs and diversities? What are the the specific challenges that those learners might face um, in general, but also particularly in computing lessons? Okay, so I'm actually going to uh, flip this around. I'm going to start off talking about strengths because, again, this is something that is often forgotten that the students with send can have real strengths in a subject you know they might have attention to detail they might have great creativity big picture thinking and it's important to to start with maybe the strengths of our students as, as well as acknowledging the, the the barriers having said that um you know there are a great deal of barriers that are experienced by by students with different learning needs every child with with send is different and this produces its own challenges um so you might have children with communication interaction difficulties, with cognition and learning difficulties, with um, mental health or um, behavioural difficulties or specific sensory and physical difficulties. So we we have to be very difficult about saying, well, these are the general challenges faced. Having said that, there are certain um barriers and, and challenges that are faced by a wide range of students with special educational needs you know we've we've, we've previously in, in one of our other um podcasts we've talked a little bit about cognitive load and i think if if educators are are mindful of cognitive load for all of their learners then that inherently i think helps people you know who have who who, who struggle because they have um their, their, their capacity for sort of w- their working memory capacity is maybe um, less than, than than their peers. I think that if we're if we're mindful of the cognitive load theory and how we can mitigate for it, then then we're supporting all of our learners and in particular those with with poorer working memory. Are there, are there any other kind of practical things that you would advocate educators and in particular computing educators focus on in their classrooms? Um, things that are kind of either you know they're, they're going to really benefit lots and lots of students or um, that are really quick wins that they can sort of do or yeah what are those practical things that educators can do yes so there are there's there's a whole whole list of things that we can do here so a lot of it is around general teaching strategies and good pedagogy and I think what teachers need to 
have as a focus is that you know if you teach excellent lessons they will benefit students with special educational needs and disabilities as well as every other child in the classroom and so thinking about general pedagogy um, how we can you know reward and praise not only attainment but um, effort in the class can be very good and motivating for students making sure that there are some quick wins in projects and activities so that students feel engaged and also you know included in 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 activity from from first principles and um, being consistent so consistency in terms of routines and also um, expectations is really important for self-esteem but also organization side of things and um, developing routines is really important in terms of key skills so if if students can understand that when they come to the classroom, if they're in the computer room, that they'll be logging on at the same time, they'll be accessing work from the same folder, that they will use the same naming convention for files at the end of the lesson, then X, Y, and Z will happen to put away, you know, headphones, etc. Then that sort of habitual nature has um, a twofold win to that, really. One is around clear expectations and routines for students who struggle with that but also it helps transfer that sort of knowledge the key skills into you know long-term memory so it doesn't have to be used in the working memory so you know a lot of teachers will say well my you know my class still can't log on and they spend half the lesson logging on because it's not you know, it's not a habitual thing, you know, they've got to really think about, well, which are the keys I'm pressing? What's my password? What's my username? And the more we can teach that explicitly early on, lower down the school, then that's one less barrier to, to learning as they go along. So, you know, having having routines is really important. Um, in terms of questioning and instructions, as I said, you know, many students struggle with two or three step instructions so breaking down instructions so that um, students you know can can do one part then another part then another part now obviously that can be difficult when you've got a lot to get through in a class so teachers can think about well actually giving some kind of visual support for a student who specifically needs it or having the instructions on the board with some you know visual uh, cues as well can be can be really helpful in terms of questioning you know it's really easy and I was guilty of this in the classroom certainly you know you ask a question and you know you ask the first person who puts their hand up to give you the answer and that's really tough for those students who actually you know they can work out the answer they just need a little bit more processing time or they have poor self-esteem so they're never going to put their hand up because they think well I'm just going to get it wrong so there are there are ways we get around that you know, things like peer instruction, the excellent quick read on that recently from yourself, um, providing, you know, multiple choice answers on the board, having some discussion time with peers to talk about why they think answers might be right or wrong, and not expecting that they'll know the right answer the first time round can be really, um, you know, inclusive of, of, of learners who, who need a bit more time or just need a bit more encouragement to be involved in, in answering questions. Um, equally, you know, you have a question, one person answers it, and then you can ask the class, open up to the class, you know, put your hand up if you agree with that answer. Or, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. It just becomes a much more inclusive activity than a first person has the hand up, they answer the question. 
so all of those sort of very general approaches um you know which is considered good pedagogy anyway can be helpful to to these learners with with extra learning uh, needs the the second thing that's quite important i think is making sure that any teaching resources are accessible so we can use kind of multimodal means of expression and access to learning so by that i mean not just the written word but you might have a video that students can watch or some audio files or a little animation or a mind map and the the greater number of ways that are available to students to access learning then the more inclusive then that instruction will be. In terms of resources, there's a sort of a set of guidelines that teachers can follow that will make them more accessible to the greatest number of students. Now, obviously, if you have a student with hearing impairment and another with visual impairment in the same classroom, it's very difficult to give them the same resource to work from. But actually, if you consider in a more general classroom, things like font size, you know, making sure that, that font is at least 14 point on worksheets or 24 point on presentations on the board makes it more readable not just using you know the latest font that's quite snazzy and looks like harry potter writing or star wars but using a sans serif font there are specific dyslexic friendly fonts but actually there's no great proof at the moment that those are better or worse individual students might find certain fonts are better or worse for them but in, in general, something sans serif of a decent font size and actually it's the spacing between the, the letters which is, is better. Um, things like using italic and underline can be a barrier for certain students to read it. So better to avoid those completely. Use bold if you want um, emphasis. Not having too much information on a slide is really important. Having some visual cues which are relevant and you know some little bit of text and then talking about it and actually you know this comes from the uh, Mayer's cognitive theory of multimedia learning and and it builds on the dual coding theory as well um, we we take in a lot more information if it's presented verbally as well as non-verbally so with image and narration and image and text and actually if you just read out a whole load of text that's on your slide that can be counterproductive so all of these things and, and there's you know some more reading that we can hopefully put in the notes on some videos that people can watch about this will help every student but particularly you know those with learning difficulties it just reduces the cognitive load of that um, it, it sounds like they're not things that we would sort of specifically do to support any particular learner. They just sound like good practice. And in many, many ways, sort of common sense, but, but you know, good practice that will support all learners. Yes, and I think that's the good news for educators is that we're not, you know, I'm not saying go out and change your practice completely, but change your practice hopefully for the better that will benefit everyone. Or there might be things people are doing already but haven't really thought of. Um, to to engage and include students and I think that's really important that it's not extra work for teachers it's just part of good practice I mean the other things that are you know really important to do is in terms of presenting information obviously we use multimedia but allowing students to present their work in different ways can open up the learning and engagement and you know creation of homework to a larger number of students so 
you know, if they have to write it down, that can be a barrier for some students. If they can create an animation to explain how the internet sends information, um, you know, th then that might be a much better way of, of, of a student presenting what they know and allowing that, which is not always easy because, you know, marking is, is, is more difficult if we have a lot of animations to watch and somebody's done a mind map and somebody's done a written bit of text, but actually it will um, benefit a, a huge number of, of students. The other thing, coming back to cognitive load, so some simple strategies for reducing cognitive load are things like teaching key vocabulary in advance. So you might send students home with a list of the key words for a particular topic, Ideally, if you can send that with you know visual support as well as the text, that's great. Maybe a definition, and it means pupils who struggle to read quickly can have already um, come across those words, and they don't have to spend valuable time decoding them in the lesson. Um, anyone who you know struggles with spelling, then they've got those things. They've practiced them at home, and it just helps reduce the cognitive load of of, of coming across new vocabulary in the classroom. Uh, introducing information in smaller chunks and this is really difficult because if you do it in two small steps then it becomes meaningless and you know students get bored if it's too much information at any one time then um, students can't take it in and so it, it, it's a bit of an art working out what that is but thinking about actually I'm going to introduce a small amount of information we're going to practice that we're going to revisit it later on in the lesson or in future lessons really helps with getting the key information there. And I think what's important is, as we said earlier, what is the absolute minimum bit of key knowledge we want every student to know that they're going to need before they can move on to the next thing. And if every student can be taught that really well, they can then practice it. And then there are activities that can stretch and extend learners, um, you know, in different contexts whilst certain learners might just be practicing that one thing really really well and that is is very very useful for a large number of learners um we talked about before the fact that abstract concepts and there's you know plenty of those in in computing computer science can be really difficult for certain learners and we can help by using familiar context to teach these sorts of things. Unplugged activities are great for teaching abstract concepts because A, you can use something tangible, something physical, something sensory to do this. So it might be movement around the classroom, it might be um, an object, it might be images, it might be music or song. And that helps learners, but also the familiar context. So for example, if we're teaching repetition, um, we can teach through the medium of song or drawing a square or how traffic lights work for, you know, uh, forever loops and things like that, that students already know about those things. And we're teaching a new concept via a familiar concept that they've already um, come across. And that reduces the cognitive load of the activity. We do have to be very careful that we are then making explicit links with the computer science concept and the programming activity that's being done because we can't just ex expect them to transfer that knowledge again that's something that learners with say learning difficulties might struggle with you know you might teach them about repetition in a song and they remember that they've done 10 green bottles and that's great but they've no idea what that looks like in a in a you know a, a program or in a specific computing language um 
planning really helps. So, you know, we should be planning out our um, digital artifacts when we're creating them and our computer programs. And by doing that, it can help decompose a more complex, you know, a large project into smaller parts. And that will help students make sense of it. So if they struggle with the complexity of the entire idea of creating an animation or a poster or a um, programming a game, actually breaking that down into the, the composite parts will make it easier for them to make sense of it. And if they've got a plan, then they've got something visual to refer to that they can work on and, and work through in a lesson. And again, this is all good practice. It should be happening anyway in computing but it will benefit those learners. Finally, scaffolding, and this is a really big one. So um, Lee talked about the use, modify, create model, and this is really, really good across computing. So it's very tempting to kind of jump into, well, we're just gonna make an animation, we're gonna make a film, we're gonna write a bit of code. And that's really, really difficult for students to, to do without any scaffolding support. So if they can use a bit of code, a bit of working code, they can look at that first, they can modify some working code to make that work. Um, twofold, they have less new knowledge that they have to kind of come up with. You know, it's, it's a bit like teaching modern languages. Um, in my past life, I was a languages teacher. And if you expect a student to suddenly start speaking Spanish, that's a lot harder than you know, reading a text or having a sentence and modifying the odd bit of vocabulary. And it's exactly the same in, in computing. So the other advantage of modifying working programs and modifying, uh, you know, maybe a poster or template is that there's a there's an element of um, success built into that. You know, a student will be able to create a working program far easier than if you give them a blank page to start from. So the PRIM model from Sue Sentence is a really good extension of that idea and what's nice about prim which seems to work really well and, and there's feedback from teachers that it works really well in mixed ability classrooms is that every student can be working on the same program or the same concept or the same you know general theme but they can be accessing it at different levels so some students can simply be running working code and exploring that some can be investigating it and naming what happens and looking at what different bits of the code does others can be modifying code and making something you know a fantastic program that has their own graphics in their own sprites um, their own specific spin on it but it, they know that it's going to work because it's based on a working program and then you know for extending other learners they can be making their own programs based on the work that they've done previously and I think that that gives such a good model for teachers to use and again rather than a differentiated well you're going to do this thing over in the corner there everyone's working on the same thing but just with different access points. Thank you, Catherine. That, 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 that's a really um, fantastic summary of some of the things that educators can do. And I think just to kind of recap a few of those, we mentioned um, a range of different scaffolding techniques that, that teachers can use, and in particular, things like PRIM. And we'll make sure there are some references in the show notes 
um, around that. Um, so we also, you also covered the, the idea of sort of chunking and breaking learning down, which is really important. Uh, and the importance of or the, or the, the value in doing things like unplugged activities where we can introduce abstract concepts, make them concrete. We can explore them through other familiar contexts. Um, so this is all this is all fascinating and really really interesting, and I think there's so much more depth to this that we can't necessarily cover in our in our short conversation now. So if learners want to find out more um, about um, supporting their learners in general, but also in computing, is, is there anywhere that they can go to uh, to find out more, Catherine? Yes. Now, and I mean, unfortunately, there's not as much information out there as, as we would like. And hopefully, you know, the NCC is addressing that and, and more information will come through. And actually, that's a, a starting point is, you know, a lot of the the quick reads, the, the podcasts, the good pedagogy that's being um, made clear and explicit through the NCC work is a really good starting point for teachers to have a look at. We have a course we mentioned earlier the online course Creating an Inclusive Classroom Approaches to Supporting sending, uh, Students with Send and Computing. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, but that online course is free for people to access. And that goes into a little bit more depth and it gives time for educators to kind of reflect on what they do in their practice and have a look at examples of a lot of the things I've spoken about today. So I really recommend going and having a look at that. And I think what's important about that as well is that's not for just teachers who are working in special schools or um, integrated resources, but for every teacher, there is, you know, there's information in there that would be really, really useful. Hello World, the magazine um, issue 11 was all around inclusion and diversity. And there's loads of really good information in there and articles and examples of what other people are doing around, you know, around the country, around the world even. There are some more specific places that might be of interest for people to go um, and we'll, we'll put the links in the notes. There's also a link on our website to a set of scratch resources where we're sort of built around the PRIM model where students can go and have a look at um, some ready-made scratch activities that they can debug, that they can explore, that they can modify and there's a whole load of, of, of different um, activities there that are ready made and, and ready to go. The final thing that might be useful to teachers specifically working with um, more severe learning difficulties or you know more complex disabilities, um, there's a, a website called sendcomputing.info which just collects a lot of the resources together, lots of ideas um, and signposts some of the materials that are available. So all of those things are there. Hopefully, you know, we can, as a community of learners and teachers, create some more resources um, for teaching students with special educational needs and disabilities about computing in the future. But there is, there's plenty there to get started with, I think. Yeah, and those resources sound fantastic. And we'll, we'll make sure we link those in the show notes. Um, so I think I think I kind of um, I, I sort of we should start to draw our episode to a, to a close now but I think it'd be really nice just to kind of quickly sort of summarize some of the things we've talked about and I think one of the underlying messages that I'm taking away from this is that you know one of the ways in which we can ensure that we are supporting our SEND pupils is by making our the activities suitable for all learners and that some of the activities 
uh, and, and measures that we might take to support specifically our send pupils will actually be beneficial to all pupils. Um, well, that was one of the things that I've kind of taken away. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to reiterate as a, as a sort of key message? I think that that's pretty much it, really. You know, if if you can take on board, you know, what's coming out with research about what's good pedagogy in computing, it will benefit your learners. And then just having a little bit of thought, you know, actually spending some time talking to your learners as well. If you've got students in your class who you know have a specific communication difficulties or learning difficulty or physical disability talk to them about what helps because they're the experts I mean you know if they're five years old perhaps less so but actually talking to the um, the Senko talking to parents talking to the student involved what can you do to make their life better as well as just some general approaches that will help include the largest number of students in your lessons. That's great. That's, that's really good advice. Thank you, Catherine. Um, so I think, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure, Catherine, talking to you today about uh, our SEND pupils and how we can better support them. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward, I'm, I'm making some time for the course myself. I'm looking forward to participating in that. And I recommend um, anyone listening to this podcast should go and check out the Future Learn course. It's, it's fantastic. So thank you very much, Catherine. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and goodbye. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.